Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. My guest this week is actress and author Rebecca Humphreys. You may remember Rebecca from her brilliant and brilliantly brave Twitter report she posted in 2018 to all of us and the world's media when her then boyfriend, the contestant on Strictly Come Dancing, very publicly cheated on her with another dancer. Rebecca wrote about the events around this in her Sunday Times bestselling memoir, Why Did You Stay? We had a really interesting chat about the events of Rebecca's life that led to this and her bravery in not just stepping out of the relationship, but also probably more importantly, scrutinizing her own actions and her own role in this abusive and toxic relationship. What I really enjoyed about this conversation was that it ranged around from the courage it takes to do the work, as we now say, to gain autonomy of our emotions, on to sobriety and how life-changing that is, and then on to the dangers of the sort of misappropriation of therapy speak. This was really a conversation about the bravery of facing yourself with all your flaws and all your beauty. And it was a really rewarding chat for that. Rebecca was great company. I hope you enjoy it and please, if you do, I would be so grateful if you could take the time to rate and review or share on social media and of course tell your friends about it. I love these conversations I am having in this podcast, Tiny Acts of Bravery, and I would love them to help others as much as they're helping me. Rebecca Humphreys, it's really lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me about bravery. Um, your paperback of your book why did you stay is out will you take us back to the circumstances that inspired that book before we go into the kind of how brave it is and and how how courageous and a brilliant piece of writing but will you will you tell me what it's about essentially yeah sure of course well in 2018 I was involved in a sort of bin fire of breakups mm. when this media scandal whirled around me and my now ex-boyfriend. He was taking part in the TV show Strictly Come Dancing at the time. And he got papped cheating on me with his dance partner when he was still in the show. Mm -hmm. And this kind of waking up on one Sunday morning and suddenly like your partner and the scandal that you're, you've been sort of dragged into by default mm -hmm. is all over the front pages. You know, it really is, it, it really was a shocking moment in my life, not least because it felt for me personally really validating because I had known that the two of them, something was going on, they were having an affair, whatever you want to call it. And when I'd confronted my boyfriend, he'd been calling me a psychopath mm -hmm. and he'd really been turning it on me. And so I suppose that like when all of the the scandal hit and when all of the publications were running with these stories and this narrative, I was like, there's a really crucial element of this that I felt a, a really strong sense of injustice. So what I did was I wrote my side of the story and I declined lots of offers to get lots of money and yeah. sell my story <laughs> because I knew that they would be in charge of what I had to say if I, you know, money parted hands mm. or exchanged hands rather. And so I wrote what happened and I put it on Twitter and it went viral and <laughs> it was sort of mad and turned out that the subjects that I was speaking about, which was emotion abuse and gaslighting, I never actually specifically called it that. And I did mm. that deliberately because I didn't want to make an accusation that didn't feel like it was founded in anything. So I just wrote what happened. Mm. I would say that ever since that point in 2018, 
most people that have heard my story have said, I know how that feels. It's happened to me in some way It's happened way or to me. Yeah. yeah, whether that's in a relationship, at work, with a friendship, with a, in a family. Mm. And yeah, it was it was sort of amazing because it really shone a light on yeah. the kind of treatment that thrives off secrecy and shame. It was on your birthday, wasn't it? It was just sort of adds insult to all sorts of injury. When you were putting that post together, um, did you realise how powerful it was? And did it feel like a brave thing to put out there onto Twitter, your side of the story, as it were? <laughs> it felt powerful to claim my narrative. Mm. I did not have any idea about how powerful it would be mm. for other people. Mm. In fact, I had conversations with my friends who, you know, were very there for me during that short time after the scandal came out. Um, I was like, you know, we have to just bear in mind that this is going to reach, you know, my pithy following and that really it will get 50 likes and the reason that I'm doing it. And I had to remind myself that because I don't want to get my ego involved in this. The reason that I'm doing it is to assert myself and not to take anyone down. Yeah. (laughs) Not to prove any points, but because I felt voiceless in that relationship for such a long time that I'm not going to remain voiceless Mm. once I've left it. This is my boyfriend anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I have my voice back and mm. I have my life back. Mm. And it felt like, you know, a step to that. And yes, it did feel brave mm. at the yeah. time of doing it because, well, because it felt like it represented something. It wasn't just the the statement in and of itself. It it really represented me claiming who I am. Mm. And I was in that relationship for a really long time, not knowing who I was um, and really sort of not even really knowing, you know, what I wanted for dinner. I couldn't even tell you what taste felt good in my mouth. I had to ask this person, you know. Yeah. And suddenly there I was and it was like, actually, this is a this is a big step because I'm owning it and I have and I have an opportunity to do it publicly. So I'm going to go nuclear with it Mm. because I can't (laughs) go back on that. This is who I am and I can't go back on it. So by putting out that Twitter statement and, and now writing your book as well, you were kind of reclaiming your voice. Can you tell me about the process by which you lost your voice? And, you know, you said you didn't really know who you were. You didn't even know what you liked to eat. How did that happen? How did how did you lose your sense of identity within the relationship? Oh my, I mean, how long have you got? I'll try and summarize it as best I can. So I felt as though that I had met this person and this person was attracted to me because I had a strong voice, Mm. because I knew myself and I wasn't afraid to assert myself. And I felt as though I stood out in that sense you know at the time this was about in 2012 you know and and I I, I do recall him being really taken aback by by this my strength of character yeah and then what happened was we threw ourselves into a relationship and into love and so I now know after lots of work mm. that actually we didn't get to know each other. Mm. I wasn't able to have the opportunity to actually assess whether we were compatible as people. And I certainly, certainly wasn't able to check in with myself and say, how are you feeling about this? It's, it's happening. And I guess it's great that it's happening because this guy's really famous and he's really successful. And mm. God, that doesn't that make you important? Mm. So we sort of threw ourselves into the relationship. This whole love bombing episode happened where we were flying to 
Berlin and to Dublin and having weekends away and I was getting presents and I was like, oh my God, you know, this is everything that I was ever promised about love. And then we bought a house and we moved in there and over the years, and it is that long, it really does take that long. And it was incredible, like it was like a creeping dread really that happens so slowly, you don't even notice it. Mm. I was living with someone who didn't know how to love well and nor did I. And because of that, I just slipped into this pattern of mine that was unconscious and actually was unconscious until only a few years ago, much further after I we broke up, but of putting him first in absolutely everything. Something that I've been conditioned to do really unconsciously, you know, as a woman, mm. be getting big pat on the head and being told that I'm a good girl for being selfless mm. and for being helpful and nurturing. And th those are my jobs within the relationship. Yeah. And so before I knew what was happening, I was, I was the person whose job it was to take care of. And when you do that <laughs> over a really long period of time, it's like your needs just cease to exist. Mm. You start forgetting what they are because mm. all I had in my brain was what his were. And, and then these things will start happening. Like my instinct and all of that personality that I knew I had was trapped inside my body for fear of tilting his needs or getting them wrong. And my intuition would start speaking up and going, he's lying or that's not true or... I think that he slept with that person. Yeah. And when I would voice that, instantly, I'm emotional, I'm sensitive, I'm a psychopath. I'm mad. I'm mad, yeah. I'm hysterical. Mm. I'm doing that thing that I always do. Mm. Why can't I be more like someone else's girlfriend? Mm. Am, I my, am I on my period? I mean, that one is so basic, <laughs> but you'd be really, really surprised like yeah. how quickly you're ready to believe it rather than believe that you're insane. Mm. So that's, that's the gaslighting, right? Mm. And then what happens then is, like even further along the journey, you start to not even bother voicing your intuition and voicing your suspicions mm. because you know what you're going to be met with. So you start to gaslight yourself. Yeah. And you go, oh God, I, I'm not even going to let those words, those suspicions come out of my own mouth because mm. I know that I'm mad and I know how mad I'm going to sound. So I'm just not going to say it. Mm. Mm. And so your voice is trapped somewhere in your body and in, in your throat. Mm. And before you know what's happening, you've lost that bit of yourself that you loved the most. And so who, yeah. who are you? At the heart of it, he was serially unfaithful to you and lied to you about it and basically called you mad and hysterical if you it suggested to him that something might be going on with other people. Because oh, lots yeah. of women came forward, didn't they? Loads. <laughs> yeah. yeah, loads, publicly, privately. Mm. But, um, but yeah, lots of them sold stories to the papers at the time and and... Yeah. And how did you, in that aftermath, because it must have been felt a relief to be removed from the relationship and to have your voice on Twitter, and yet to then sort of understand that things that you had felt about the relationship were completely untrue. In fact, the relationship itself was all based on kind of lies and obfuscation. And <laughs> how did you hold on to a, a sense of yourself at that point and it was it was it was over five years the relationship it was quite mm. a significant amount of time yeah it was yeah it was more like a real process of just reframing how I had always seen that relationship mm. because I never thought I was in a toxic relationship I just thought I was in a relationship like I thought it was really normal because at that time we weren't talking about things like gaslighting. We weren't talking about red flags. Mm. We weren't talking about what toxicity looked like and what was acceptable and what wasn't. So I just thought it was a relationship. And 
my process of feeling validated about myself and who I was started that night in the Strictly Come Dancing car park mm -hmm. when he said, reluctantly, because the sun. And it's only because had, of that because that he was that forced happened, into it. He was forced into yeah. it. Mm. And it was a combination of those things that made me go, oh my God, n not how desperately sad that this had to end this way, but I was right. Mm. What else was I right about? Mm. I've got myself back. Mm. And so during that aftermath, when all these people were coming forwards, the sadness wasn't so much in this relationship has come to an end because I have often said, and this is the, true of a lot of people who've experienced emotional abuse, I felt like I was grieving it when I was still in it. Right, yeah. In a, you know, why is this happening to me <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when I left, actually the sadness, the desperate sadness that I felt was, oh my gosh, I, I feel as though like I had, you know, this person, this man had like held up a cardboard cutout of himself in front, in front of him, his actual self, mm. and me, stupid me, had fallen in love with it. And really, the sadness came from, oh my gosh, like, what does that say about me? Like, what do, what, why was I prepared to do that? Mm. And why was I so prepared to put love before myself? Before yourself. And that was the real sadness, truthfully. And I suppose since then, you, you've referred to the work that you've done on yourself, and presumably that is relating to that question of of why you did allow him to sort of put himself in front of you, as it were. What have you learned from that work? And and learned specifically, I suppose, about the bravery of self-realization, I think. <laughs> what have I learned about it? I've learned that looking in the mirror is mm. really, really hard mm. and painful, but it is absolutely nothing on living a life without looking in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. That is... That is a slow death, actually. Mm. And, you know, I know that that sounds really dramatic, but I've experienced a taste of it, you know, and I've experienced what it's like to bury your head in the sand. And, you know, when, when, when you choose to do the work and to look in the mirror and to ask questions about yourself and your patterns and why does this keep happening to me? Or like, <laughs> oh God, I've done it again. I could either sit around eating Ben and Jerry's and just being like, oh, well, on to the next. Mm. Or I could go, how am I going to stop this in its tracks? And how am I going to feel confident that I can live a life devoid of this problem over and over again? Well, you really have to muster it up. Mm. Like you really have to muster up that courage and look for avenues that aren't available. It's a bit, a bit like looking on the dark web, you know, <laughs> like you sort of have to go, all the places that I've been looking in have not worked. Mm. So now I've got to like unpeel that layer and start looking in other places and trying to find help and trying to find resources. And which places did you look in? Actually, um, it started with just having conversations. It started with speaking to, being brave enough to speak to the people in my life mm. that I respected and that I know love me um, in a way that felt more investigative honest. and yeah. honest. And that came from a moment where I was like, I can't keep doing this because it was, I actually, I actually strangely had a breakup after that one that was, you know, the relationship was better, but there were other red flags that didn't exist, that they weren't the same as the last one. So I missed them mm. because my newer boyfriend was very different to my ex-boyfriend. So that sort of made him acceptable, but actually 
it was a very low bar to jump over. <laughs> and and so, you know, I came out of that relationship going, oh, my God, I, I've done it again. And I've done all this work. And how do I do it? I read something you wrote, I think, for The Guardian about, because um, I believe with this second relationship, you went to live with him in L.A. And then soon after moving to L.A., he split up with you and yeah. you were and you were flying home. And you write very bravely, actually, about sort of looking at yourself on the flight and thinking, this has happened again. Okay, slightly different circumstances, but this is a sort of toxic relationship. What is the common denominator? <laughs> I am the common denominator. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, you can go through life mm. sort of pointing fingers mm. everywhere and going, everything bad always happens to me. Or you can actually really flip that and go... I am the thing that everything has in common. <laughs> so what is it about me that's withstanding this or putting up with it or attracting it in some way? Mm. And that's when you go, oh, okay. If The reason, you know, it's, it sounds a bit like you're sort of self-flagellating, but actually if you do it with curiosity and with open-heartedness mm. and vulnerability, that's when you start going, well, it's time to do something. You know, once you choose to open the door to self-development mm. and growth and learning about yourself, that door, like, you can't go back mm. ever. And you have to commit to the idea that it's never-ending either. Mm. You don't get fixed at any point. You just learn new stuff and you're constantly evolving. Mm. And that's amazing. But it's also a big commitment. And like, you're going to find out stuff about yourself that you don't like, Yeah, you know, and, it, it, and you might be someone who really liked themselves before when they knew less, mm. but maybe you didn't love yourself. Mm. Mm. And actually loving is about accepting, right? And so many of us don't accept ourselves. And once you choose to learn how to accept yourself, then you can choose how to love yourself. Mm. Once you do that, that's when you can really love others. Yes, <laughs> you know? yeah, truly. And I think that clarity of thought is really, really hard to get to. The kind of real self-examination is a difficult thing to do. I gave up drinking two years ago this summer and I didn't think I was an alcoholic, but I obviously was drinking, you know, in quite a kind of drunk way. <laughs> mm. I've found giving up drinking has really, really helped me to understand my emotions, what I'm actually feeling, not the kind of racing anxiety of being a bit hungover and then the dread of whatever this work deadline or some relationship or friendship or something that's going on like takes a hold of you. Obviously, I still have those kind of anxieties, but with when you're completely sober, there's like, okay, I'm, I'm a bit worried about that work deadline, but that's okay. I can do that work then. And that will mean that I'll be able to deal you know with that or for me so for me sobriety has been a huge huge part of kind of the work I do on myself I suppose is there any other kind of practical I don't know books or online courses or just stuff that you've done that somebody listening to this might think well maybe yeah I could start doing some of that work oh my gosh like so many things um I'm sober as well. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting you talking about that because I was like, oh, yeah, I, I, I was never an alcoholic either or yeah. didn't identify as one. But I definitely see now that I just gave it up yeah. that it sometimes got in the way. And now my emotions still get in the way, but they're part of me. Mm. So, like, I'm able to navigate them much clearer. How long ago did you give up? Oh, actually, not too long ago. Funnily enough, I, I, I met a man... Um, who's now my boyfriend, who was sober. And I, and when he started talking about it, this was about 
nine months ago. Right. And when he started talking about it and his journey, I was like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me. And mm. and also I recognized, and I learned this at Hoffman, I recognized that lots of the the things that I was looking for outside of myself, some people go to alcohol, mm. people go to drugs or, you know, exercise. Yeah. And, but I was doing it with other people. I was doing it with love and relationships. Right. Um and I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of replaced that with mm. other substances. So I'm just going to get rid of them. So there's that. But gosh, I mean, I, I have so many like recommendations about getting to know yourself. And I've done so many things, but some of them, you know, are going to sound, I'm, I'm conscious of sounding, you know, a bit, I moved to Bali. Um, <laughs> um, but things like, you know, the people who are really good about talking about this stuff are people like Oprah. Yeah. Like, so Oprah's podcast, mm. Super Soul Sunday is great. Mm. Um, things like Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now mm. is a great book that I just loved. Mm. Uh, things like going away in nature mm. for a weekend on, on your own, like having... People find that quite a brave thing too. Like, you know, actually taking yourself out of your relationships to other people and going and just sitting and being by yourself and taking things that you enjoy mm. and, and connecting with that. But I also think that's really, really linked to sobriety though as well. Because when you're drinking, even if you're not drinking to excess, but the desire to have a drink or waking up and feeling a bit groggy because you have been drinking detracts from every single human experience. So the thing of going out into nature or listen, you know, reading a book is it's not as clear, is it? Because there is that sort of relationship between the world. You are there and the world is there and then alcohol is even if it's just like a couple of glasses of wine, it is there changing your the way that you filter that nature, the way that you hear those words. It's your barrier. Yeah. It's your barrier between you and your experience. Mm. And I, like I had an amazing, amazing thing, which was about, I, I related to it a lot. So I go to like a lot of opening night parties because I'm an actress and, and I work in the theater mm. and that's something that happens. And for a really, really long time, what would happen is I would dread going because I am an extrovert, sure, but I'm an, uh, people assume that I'm an extrovert all the time in every space, and that can be quite stressful. So I turn up to events, and suddenly I feel like I don't really know what to do, um, and, I, and I don't like being there. So what do I do? I reach straight for a drink. Mm. I reach for that drink in order that my body that doesn't want to be there will get plugged into that space, where actually what my body is trying to tell me is, you're not enjoying this. Why don't we go home? Why don't we get under that quilt and watch The Sopranos? <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> and actually, sometimes it's good to encourage mm. your body yeah. to be in those places and those experiences and try and find a way through them. But it's not good to force yourself and to use something outside of yourself, to force yourself to be in places that you aren't happy. Yeah. And when I realized that, I was like, oh my gosh, I have autonomy and I have agency over my time because it's precious. I have so much of it. We only get one life. Mm. And a lot of a lot of what I'm doing is about putting myself in situations that I don't like. Mm. Um, 
and using other things to do that. I think it's interesting as well, that thing of like the drink at a party, because even if you don't leave the party and you stay in the party sober, we had a leaving party a few weeks, couple of weeks ago because we're moving to America. I loved, I loved it. It was really good fun. There was like loads and loads of people that I love most in the world. But it's intense mm. as well. Like without a single glass of wine, let alone a bottle or two of wine to kind of blur it all and take the edges off. And sometimes I had to kind of check myself during that party and say, whoa, wow, this is like, you know, this is really, really intense and really, really tiring. And again, it's that thing of, so even if you don't remove yourself from a situation, just understanding your emotions yes yeah is so important because you'd reach it? for that wine instead of going how are you yeah like yeah. how do you feel and creating that in a dialogue and like yeah. you know even if you, as you're right you don't have to remove yourself from the situations but you can go and sit in the toilet for 20 minutes yeah just like, like do a bit of i sometimes during the party i go up to my room and just like whoo you know this is this is really really it's big yeah big feelings i'm feeling all the stuff about leaving and with my friends and i think quite a lot of the time as well like we we don't do those things in case someone else thinks that it's weird or mm. in case we have to explain it away but mm. who cares mm. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter <laughs> maybe it'll actually enable someone else to go oh that's a good idea like yeah. maybe i'll do that and then spreads out and I do think that stopping drinking is courageous that bravery of really facing life and all the feelings without blurring anything I'm really interested in relation to the previous you know relationship with the guy on Strictly and also the one that you, you write about after that the guy in LA you are now with somebody who is completely sober mm. how did that kind of joint sobriety um, encourage I mean how does it encourage a dialogue of real honesty the honesty that you were deprived of in previous relationships oh that's a great question well the answer is that there's no comparison right really um it was dating my current partner mm. james <laughs> i can use his name yeah. <laughs> um, he uh he was really really clear with me and really really upfront uh, when we just started chatting we met on hinge Right. And we were just chatting and he was like, um, oh, by the way, before we, before we, you know, meet for our date, I just want you to know that I'm sober and um, it's absolutely fine if that changes things for you. And I remember thinking, wow, like that is so, that's such a, an honest mm. thing to say. And it speaks of so much self-worth that if I didn't want to go on a date with him, that'd be okay. Like, because he just finds someone else that did. Yeah. <laughs> That is hot, you know, yeah. like that kind of agency. And then it was really frightening. It was incredibly, because I wasn't sober at this point, bear in mind right. as well. Yeah. And no one else that I was dating, and I was dating other people at the time, no one else was sober. And I was going on dates where we would get absolutely trolleyed, yeah. like within minutes, you mm -hmm. know, like I, we, probably, we wouldn't be like, uh, you know, how are you, where are you from without having had a sip of margarita, yeah. you know what I mean? And so we, James and I, you know, on our first date, it went really well. We were talking about things that, you know, that we had a choice to talk about because we weren't being like, I, I, th I think sometimes about drinking alcohol, especially when it comes to being on dates and, you know, starting relationships. Sometimes it's like, it sort of grips you by the chest and it just pulls you into conversations that mm. you're not ready for mm. or that, you, or like opens up bits of yourselves that, you wouldn't choose to but before you know oh well, I guess it's happening yeah and like here we are and oh why be and the amount of times that I've been pissed on dates and then be like I don't really know why I told you that <laughs> you know what I mean like all they say it to me and actually when James and I were dating it was 
we were both so in charge of the stages mm. and of what we were prepared to open up to a stranger and someone that we were getting to know. And I've said before that it's the most honest process of getting to know someone probably that I've ever had because we both knew why we were there. We were there to sort of navigate this idea of falling in love or dating or mm. just or maybe just sex. Like we didn't know each other. So mm. who knows what that might have been. And then each one of those sort of relationship landmarks we made in our right minds. Mm. And, you know, the scariest thing, God, you know, I'm sure he won't mind me talking about this, but the scariest thing is having sex having sober. Sex, yeah. That is absolutely terrifying. And when I've spoken to my female friends about it in particular, they're just like, oh my God, like I don't, it, you know, when I've met someone new, I have to get absolutely rat arsed in order they to take my clothes off. Mm. But there's something about like, it's, it's, you know, something about just going, well, guess I better accept myself. Yeah. <laughs> that starts you off on a really amazing foot with another person. Yeah. No, and that is really, you know, we're talking about bravery. That is really, really brave. But what an amazing place that it takes you to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And funnily enough, this relationship that I've had, that I'm having mm. uh, with James has gone slower and at a much more um, sort of steady and healthy mm. pace than any other relationship that I've ever had where, you know, we would, I don't know, piss off to Paris and get fucked up. You yeah. know? Like, <laughs> like, and it's all been so measured. Mm. And, you know, when I was in relationships that felt sort of a bit more reckless, I had a mistaken idea that that's what the romance and passion looked and, like. Yeah. But I can honestly say that this measuredness, like the respect that I feel from that person and the respect that I have for myself, like that's a turn on. Like yeah. that is hot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's 10 times for me more passionate than any other relationship that I've ever been in because I can be my actual self. You can actually be yourself. And I'm yeah. free. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? I love hearing you talking about that because um, I've been with Pete, who I'm married to, who I totally, totally adore and I totally love him. We have a strong difficult marriage because which marriage isn't difficult mm, you sure. know but um we've been together for 13 years now but when we when I first met him we um didn't sleep together for like three months which was again it wasn't the way that I had done things before I'd normally like you know had sex immediately but there was a long process of spending time together and really getting to know each other and when you say getting to know each other and I'm doing an inverted commas yeah. with my fingers it sounds like oh that's a bit boring you know where's the romance where's the passion mm. but in terms of the sort of long-term knowledge of one another and the long-term respect and the long-term friendship which underlies we have really good sex as well you know it, and, but you have to have that respect and friendship for one another as well for everything else to happen totally yeah I mean the idea as well of setting precedents mm. in your relationship that are gonna be be seen out long term long term yeah was a bit alien to me really yeah. I, you know and you're absolutely right like the getting to know it just sounds like oh my god it just sounds so like 1950s like you know <laughs> or and, like your pen pals <laughs> yeah 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 like it's just a bit grim a bit virginal isn't it but actually it's you know, it's sitting up with someone and yeah. talking and being excited by the, the things that you have in common or yeah. the things that you that they say that you want to contest and, yeah. and finding out that 
you know, that they don't agree and that you can have that discourse and you can like find little pathways into new and exciting comments. Like that's getting to know, you know. And it's truly seeing each other as human beings, isn't it? I have never done internet dating before. Like so, so um, because, yeah, me and Pete got together, well, t- 13 years ago. So it didn't, wasn't really like, it wasn't really around then. But And I'm really fascinated by the way the kind of dating world happens now because it's something I have no experience of whatsoever. Um, what's it, your advice about how to kind of achieve what we're talking about, I suppose, without just getting like completely carried away by the idea? And also because the massive amount of choice of dating apps mm. there is a whole smorgasbord of like people, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but how do you actually... Um, like to not just turn into a kind of computer game of swiping. What would your advice be about how to date in a healthy way? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about this because it is so... I was actually having a conversation about this quite recently mm. and it was, a, it was at Pride of All Places with someone who was like, oh, you know, I really want to meet someone, but I'm not doing the apps because they're shit and... Um, oh, it's just hell, isn't it? It's just hell. And I think that there's a real, there's a real belief about that. And there's like a real shorthand where everyone's like, oh God, I'm single, but I don't want to do apps. But actually you can make them work for you. Mm. Like there is definitely a way of making this work for you. And the way that you do that is by knowing what you're looking for, being really specific about it and going, okay, well, based on my last experiences, what was it about those people that I really loved? Well, a good sense of humor, um, a lightness about the world, but what is it that that those things were missing? An open emotional dialogue and someone who could hold my feelings and didn't expect me to carry their baggage as well as my own. So for me, that looked like someone who'd done the work on themselves, mm. you know, and someone who could make me laugh. Mm. Just put that down. So I wrote it on my profile. Did you? Because so many people are really, and also, you know, I was, um, I was looking for someone who wasn't going to be intimidated by a woman that knew what she wanted. Mm. So how am I going to test that? Well, I'm going to put it on my profile and see who I intimidate right. and who I don't. <laughs> okay. And suddenly before you know what's happening, I, you know, I'm getting far fewer responses than maybe like a year ago when I was a bit more vague and sort of wanted to be liked mm. more than I wanted to find someone who I actually wanted to be with or was compatible with me. Mm. But that the people that I was, that, that were getting in touch with me were all people who were interested by the real me. And I think that that's the thing, like people get really scared about putting themselves out onto things like dating apps in case they don't receive any responses. And that is completely legitimate. Like obviously that's going to be really tough to sort of think about or to deal with but you don't need all of those things if you've put the real you out mm. there and you don't have to go on a million decks I mean there's there's an argument there's sort of a numbers game but you don't have to if you're really honest about what it is that you're looking for and so that that's the, that's my main thing like put your re, put your actual self out of there because I believe in law of attraction as well mm. I really really do believe that you have to know what it is you want and you have to put your authentic self out there in order to attract mm. other authentic people. But it is a br- it is a kind of brave thing not to try and turn yourself into, contort yourself, let's say, because it isn't a pleasant 
experience, but contort yourself into a shape that you think somebody else wants, basically, which is never going to last anyway. It's no. impossible. But to bravely say this is specifically who I am and it's this shape and it may, you know, that in itself is a is a courageous thing to do. It's hugely courageous. <laughs> it's, you know, incredibly tempting to put six, you have to put six pictures on Hinge, mm. six pictures of yourself from the right angle. Yeah. You know, or six pictures of yourself where you look like you conform to societal beauty standards. Mm. Because, duh, like that's uh, what we've been taught is attractive and desirable and palatable since we were, you know, knee high. Mm. So, of course, that's going to be everyone's instincts. Mm. But that's what I mean in terms of what we were talking about earlier on when it comes to self-acceptance. Mm. And it's like, no, actually, I don't look like that all the time. I don't conform to societal standards mm. all the time. Like sometimes that's fun for me to do because I like makeup and I like dressing up yeah. and, and I like nice clothes. But actually, I don't, I, I want someone who just might like my realness yeah. and who I am and not what I'm presenting to the world. And, you know, that's because I want something that's going to last, mm. not because I want something that's going to be really exciting for a while until they figure out that actually what, who I am bothers them mm, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah and that's and you know that's also an argument that if you if that's something that you're putting out into the world then you might I don't want to be in a position where I'm trying to live up to my hinge profile for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah my, my flashy hinge profile impossible you know, as well to pretend exactly and that's when you start losing your voice yeah. and that's when you start accommodating the other person and trying mm. to squeeze into the shape mm. that they want and not what that you are I'm interested, though, as well, the fact that it is a relationship between two people. And sometimes I wonder with the, you know, the word narcissist is used mm. constantly. We, yeah. And I use it about other people. I'm sure people have used it about me as well. Like, do you think we're in danger of kind of dismissing somebody who doesn't behave or who behaves badly as a narcissist? I mean, do you think that's an overused word to kind of dis dismiss, explain lots of human behavior and sometimes that actually we also have to take responsibility for our own stuff as well 100 percent. yeah yeah uh, there is an absolute wave of reappropriation mm. of therapy speak at the mm. moment and i've spoken about it a lot um and i'm trying to write about it a lot too so i'm really really glad we're having this conversation because misappropriation of therapy speak is so Dangerous because it's so hard to contest without seeming insensitive or stupid. And it's being used a huge amount. And we saw it with Jonah Hill using term boundaries mm. where actually it means control mm. in that instance. Mm. And, you know, putting a, a, a personal boundary is a protective fence that you put around yourself in order that other people can't hurt you it's not something that you put around the other person yeah. to red tape off their life so that you don't have to deal with your own insecurities <laughs> so, and, and in that instance that's what that meant and and yes I do think that things like narcissism I think things like uh, gaslighting, gaslighting as well yeah. is you know gaslighting isn't lying mm. it's lying 2.0 mm. it's not you didn't do this you might feel crazy if someone says no that didn't happen um, but gaslighting is, no, that didn't happen. And, and there's something wrong with you for thinking that. So then it actually contorts your thinking about yourself. Yes, it it's, it's a lie that mm. that then also turns the other person against themselves and mm. calls into question their mental state. That, and gradually that has the power 
to turn someone against their own thoughts, feelings, whatever. But narcissism is really interesting because a, a narcissist as well, like when we when we start misappropriating that and like calling people who have, uh, uh, you know, are arrogant, arrogant people, you know, may not be a narcissist. A narcissist is someone who has complete lack of empathy and actually can't see something from another person's point of view for all sorts of reasons. And one of those reasons might be because it's too difficult because mm -hmm. they are so vulnerable and insecure that they know that they're going to have to start looking at a, a wealth of things that they've been cruel about or wrong about or done badly in their entire life. And it's too hard. So it's a protect protective mm. thing. Mm. But narcissism as well, you know, when we start just calling arrogant people or people who have like hugely inflated egos, narcissists all over the place, it's quite dangerous because also there are things like covert narcissists mm. who are people who do have that lack of empathy, but they present as vulnerable victims and everything they're a victim of all the time. And so you don't even notice that because they can't be a narcissist because they're not up themselves and they're not parading their sense of self-worth around the place. Mm. So it's it's really dangerous for all sorts of reasons, yeah. And with the work that you've done on yourself, when you look back at the behaviour of the person who caused you this pain, because he did things, you know, like, as well as being unfaithful, which I just think is a really, really horrible thing to do to somebody else within a relationship, serially calling you mad. But also he did weird things like would call you from the stage where he was doing stand-up and mm. you become the butt of his joke and mm. so on. Yeah. Um, do you feel now, and I hope this is not an intrusive question, but do you feel a sense of forgiveness towards him or a sense of detachment from him? How do you feel? Because he is a, you know, a damaged person with his own stuff that he's carrying. Yeah. How has the work that you've done kind of helped, I suppose, to see your relationship in the past from where you are now? The work that I started the day that I left that mm. relationship um was on me mm. and that was really hard to begin with because a lot of time spent from when we broke up um and especially throughout that first year of our breakup um you know I'd wake up in the night going oh my god I've ruined his life and his career because that sense of responsibility was so strong in me and it was exploited in mm. me by that person yeah. so that I always felt responsible for him yeah and I, I I had over the years really forgotten that actually I'm responsible for myself mm. and my own life so there was still that residue that was clinging to me even when I'd left the relationship so my work actually was getting rid of that and mm. understanding that it would be one thing to kind of like oh I don't know like forensically look into that person's past and their trauma in their life and what made them behave with narcissistic tendencies and what made them abusive and actually, that would just be another version of taking responsibility for them and not for, myself. For him, yeah. And so I was like, oh, no, actually, my work is, well, I mean, I wrote a book about it. What did you say? My work is considering how I allowed myself to be in that position, why I kept it up for as long as I did, and why I'm so prepared to chuck the bits of myself that I like the best mm. just out of the window mm. to be in love with someone who's hurting me. Mm. Like, what is that about me? So mm. really, like, that's been my work. And that has been not only incredibly empowering, but it's also been incredibly useful because it's meant that I don't think about that person yeah. other than in this context yeah. at all. They don't feature in my life yeah. in any way. And actually sometimes, you know, someone will mention something that they're doing or, you know, they were on TV last year. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you know, I can sort of go 
cool. Yeah, and that's a really powerful place to be, that their behaviour doesn't spill into your emotional life no, and in also, any way at all. And also... How liberating. Yeah, how brilliant. It is brilliant. Mm. And also, you know, really stepping up and claiming my narrative mm. and knowing full well that I have every right to it, as does anyone. You have a right to your experience. Yes. And... You, you know, you have a right to not let that be dictated by the person that you're in love with or that you were in love with. You know, no one person can write the story of something that happened between two people. And that's been really helpful for me because he can say what he likes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because he does have a right to that and he has a right to his experience and how he sees the relationship. Mm. As long as he respects that I do too, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And... It, it really is that light. When we say bravery, what does bravery mean to you? <laughs> it's such a it's such a big question. Um, I suppose that to me it means, well, it's vital. Mm. Um, bravery is like the resistance to injustice. I have a really strong sense of injustice. Bravery is how we counter oppression and being silenced. Mm and being made to feel less than. And, you know, it can come in many forms. It can come in speaking out publicly, but also it can be every day. And it's not easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be brave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? that's a really, really good point. <laughs> <laughs> that would, it would just be something that you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, for, for me, it's like an, the essential resistance, really. And do you think that bravery is something that we can get we can sort of practice and get better at as we get older. 100%. Oh, it, it's like it's like working on yourself, right? Yeah. It's never going to be easy, but it does get easier. Mm. And lots of people call me brave. Lots of people would, would say that about me. And some things, it's just different for everyone, isn't it? Like the people, the reason I get called brave is because people are like, oh, I could never stand on stage and do that if I'm in a play. Or, oh my gosh, like I could never put a statement out publicly or I could never write a book about that and to, actually to me well the statement aside because that was you know a real moment but like standing on stage or talking about this or talking with you about this or writing that book it didn't feel brave mm -hmm. it just felt like something I could do for me mm. the bravery comes you know in much smaller ways like asserting a boundary yeah or saying to a friend that thing last week that I said was okay, actually, I felt really hurt by it. Mm. You know? Yeah. And being afraid of what might happen next. Mm. Those are those are the little things that to me, mm. I, I am having to practice mm. a lot. Mm. And that's about human interaction, isn't it? And the way that we are as human beings with, with one another. And I, I mean, I'm 48 and I certainly feel that I am getting braver and I'm, and, and also that, with age and with years becomes, I mean, you make mistakes, tons of mistakes, and you have, you know, crazy emotions and not crazy, I don't want to say crazy emotions, you have all the big emotions. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, kind of you get better at life, don't you? You mm. do sort of get better at knowing yourself and better at interacting, I think, and better at being, being a human being. And you get better at the things, well, you get better at knowing what you stand for yeah. and what you're prepared to accept. And like, for, I've got an example for you. So last week, I really stood up for a group that I was in and I called someone out because I said, 
I think that that's misogynistic. Mm. And I can't even begin to tell you what it took to stand up to a man in front of a group in that way. But I, I, f I, feel, I feel bravery quite somatically. Mm. <laughs> I, I see it in three stages. There's like the burden, mm. the burden of having something to say and knowing that you need to stand up. There's the brave act itself. And then there's the aftermath. The aftermath, yeah. Um, and the thing that I'm, the thing that is sort of getting me braver is understanding that the aftermath can feel like a hit. Right. <laughs> and trying to become addicted yeah. to that feeling of feeling very proud of myself for doing that yeah. rather than seeing the, the the thing as just that first bit, just mm. the burden and just the scary act of bravery. Mm. It's like, oh, actually, the more I do this, the more I practice this, the more I realize that there's a huge payoff yeah. afterwards. And I'm sort of trying to get myself addicted to that. And it's sort of, I feel like it's like looking through some curtains and you're pulling the curtains apart and you do that brave thing, whatever it is. And there are many, many different forms, of mm. course. But then you see through those, you know, sort of I've got an image of like heavy red curtains or something, velvet, heavy curtains that you can see a little bit more of the light, can't you? Yeah. And life becomes a bit more, you know, the view becomes a bit more vivid, a bit more interesting, a bit more colourful, wider. Your view gets wider with bravery, doesn't it? Oh, 100%, 100 yeah. Mm. And actually, it's so liberating, mm. in a sense. I was, you know, a lot of, a lot of the reason, I, I've unpacked this too for myself, and I spoke to someone last week about it too, another writer, and, and we were talking about how so much of our own internalized misogyny really and like not speaking out and not being having been brave for so much of our lives was about being palatable yeah. or being desirable or just unconsciously carrying with us the idea that being strong and defiant um and being brave in that sense was quite masculine right yeah and actually it's about changing your mindset and going oh my gosh I, for a really really long time I thought that if I was brave I it meant that I had to be like assertive and aggressive in that way and those two things came hand in hand and going actually for me now bravery is about embracing the masculine and the feminine yeah. inside myself because something that we're just not taught is you can be strong and soft simultaneously yeah. and there's a way of asserting yourself in a way that doesn't have to be in, with a loud voice and a pointed finger it can actually be really grounded and soft and vulnerable while also understanding that you can take up that space yeah. in that way and as soon as I think, you know, that's so important for people to know because it doesn't make you a certain kind of person, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You can really use those, embrace those parts of yourself. Which point in your life do you feel that you have been most brave? Mm. I think, I mean, I, it's probably to come. <laughs> like, you know, when you think you've done something and it's like, oh gosh, I bet, I, bet that, I bet it will come up at some point. I might just have better ways of dealing with it. I suppose that, honestly, it's probably, it's probably the moment that I decided to release that statement. Yeah, yeah it, it probably was. Because I still was on shaky ground and I was still unsure of, I was still unsure of who I was. You know, it was only two days after after all of that stuff kicked off. It was, in, in fact, I decided to make the statement 
the day after it all kicked off. And then the next day was about writing it and about articulating myself in the way that I felt best represented me. Mm. But I was sort of trying to represent someone that I didn't have fully back mm. at that time. And sort of in what some ways make an estimation of, I think I'm like this. I think I think I was like this before I met this person. I think that's who I want to be now. Um, and then pressing send, pressing yeah. send. Because I thought as well, it would be so easy for everyone just to think I'm mad. Mm. And maybe I am still. Maybe, maybe I, you know, I didn't have my brain fully back by that point. I've been told for a really long time that it wasn't reliable. I think that moment of reclaiming your voice is, I was in my first marriage, I was not, it wasn't the similar, it was to do with addiction. And, and I was sort of secret about it. I didn't tell anybody about his addiction, which was really, really, really intense. Mm. And then when I realized that I could not stay in that relationship any longer, I had two really young children. I was terrified of leaving, but that, that sense of I'm going to, and I will somehow be all right, me and, and I will be able to look after the kids on my own and so on. The exhilaration and relief of that is so, so intense. But I really understand what you're talking about, that feeling of the courage that that takes and the courage that it takes to say this is what has happened and this is who I am is is massive. So I really congratulate you on that. Oh, well, same by the sounds of things. <laughs> Will you share your talisman with us? <laughs> I will, I will. It's just a picture because I couldn't bring it, him, in. Um, and it's my cat. Your cat. <laughs> it's my cat. Um, it was his birthday on, it was yesterday's birthday, he's seven. Um, <laughs> I do appreciate it. It obviously makes me sound like a mad person because, you know, he is just a cat. No, but he's um, a living but... <laughs> being and who is part of your life. It's yes, not absolutely. just a cat. And also, you know, he is increasingly looking like um, Harrison Ford, I think, <laughs> in his old age. Look, this is, obviously, when I when I released that statement, you know, so he's part of the statement. He's part he? of the yeah. statement, and it was it was a hashtag that went viral. Hashtag I took the cat, mm. you know, that happened. People were making T-shirts about it. I mean, it was absolutely mad. At one point, he was on page three of the Sun, which I was <laughs> obviously obsessed with. Um, but it was a real sort of instinctive moment when I got all of my stuff out of that flat that I lived in with this person. And I, my friend came over and quite literally, I mean, my ex stormed out of the house and I was just left there on my own in this flat, having, you know, just received this news and having it in my body that, you know, we'd just been viciously papped by journalists mm. leaving the Strictly Come Dancing studio. And I was just there like, on the precipice of this story breaking and about what was about to happen to me the next day and just all became too much, you know, and and I sort of fell to the ground and and my friend who had keys, I'd managed to just get on the phone to my friend and go, just Google, just Google him. And then next thing I knew, I was sort of being picked up from the floor by my friend and he was sort of like putting creams into a bag. <laughs> like I was like, my products, you know, like before we left the house. And then I was like, I need Winston. Mm. He's the cat and, mm. you know, we just took a little overnight bag, all my creams and, and this cat on my lap mm. and woke up the next morning and I see this thing and I was like, wow, this is this is what it looks like now. It's, yeah. it's just us really. And and he really, you know, has grown into the most sweet kind he's of affectionate thing. He is pretty gorgeous, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's I mean, very, like, very beautiful. He's a ragdoll cat and he's white with blue eyes and, and grey ears, which is, and he's getting, he's getting grey on top, which is why he looks at Harrison Ford. But... He really is a, a sort of measure, actually, of how far we've come, what journey we've been on. I love it that your talisman is a living 
breathing being as well. Mm. It's really, it's really, really lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's been really wonderful talking to you, Rebecca. Thank you so much. You too. It's my pleasure. It really has. Thank you. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation that I had with Rebecca. I think I particularly enjoyed um, our chat about sobriety and how life-changing it is. You can probably hear from the sounds in the background that um, I'm outside. I am actually walking near my house in DC and there's this incredible sound, as there is all the time really at this point in the year, of the cicadas. It's really um, the sound of heat. It's quite exciting to live around. I think one of the reasons I particularly enjoyed talking to Rebecca about sobriety is that today is my two-year anniversary of having given up drinking myself. And I remember very, very clearly the moment when I decided that I was going to do that. And I didn't actually know whether it would be a long-term decision, but I just knew that I wanted more emotional clarity. I wanted to really understand my emotions and I wanted to be able to hold myself accountable in some way for the way that I was feeling and that's opposed the way it might be different ways that I might be behaving because of that. The process of giving up drinking has been a huge, completely life-changing and absolutely brilliant process for me. It's changed so much and my life is so much richer and so much more enjoyable. Yes, there are moments when I miss it for sure um, and it's not always easy. There have been moments in this move when I've really craved like a glass of wine although I say a glass of wine really craved a bottle of wine let's face it just last week we you know were two weeks into having entirely uprooted our life and moved from Oxfordshire in the countryside to urban life in the city and I just felt completely melted down and totally out of control I didn't know who I was I didn't know how to open a bank account I didn't know how to make anything work and I thought god I would love to have a drink and obviously I didn't and I'm really really grateful for that and I've kind of pushed through it and feel a lot better but um anyway I'll leave you with the sound of the cicadas and maybe the roar of the traffic as well thank you for listening I'm Clover Stroud, and I really look forward to sharing more brave conversations with some of the amazing guests I have lined up. To keep up with the episode drops, please follow Tiny Acts of Bravery on your podcast platform. And of course, I would be so grateful if you'd rate and review my podcast. And I will be back next week with another brilliant guest.